0: Oh, yeah. Good morning again. Uh, Last Sunday morning, we started a a new series of messages for the summer uh, called Summer of Love. Of course, the phrase Summer of Love was coined uh, back in 1967, summer of 67, and it referred to this movement or this culture or this happening, this phenomenon uh, that had its genesis and maybe also its epicenter in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. Uh, Though the Summer of Love vibe or culture spread pretty quickly among young adults young people in the United States sort of to all kinds of urban centers But it's it's epicenter and its beginning was really Hate ashbury uh, The original Summer of Love was about peace and it was about Friendship it was about anti-war protests about flowers. It was about it was about some drugs uh, It was about music. It was about community. It was about Volkswagen buses. I think judging by the photos, and it was really, maybe at its heart, it was about love. It was about free love, it was about uh, physical love, it was about romantic love. Our focus this summer, however, is not so much about those things or in those ways, but instead about the abundance and the richness of what the scriptures describe as God's love, as God himself, as the way that God lives and exists and is, and the way that everything flows out of the God who is love and the God of love the way that God uh, emotes love and the way that God calls people and invites people not only into love, but to live out that love as well. Last Sunday morning, we began with the foundational truth stated explicitly and simply a couple of times in John's first letter, 1 John, that quote, God is love. God is love, not, ne- not necessarily that love is God, but God is love. The Bible says much about who God is and how God is, about the nature and the characteristics, the traits, the attributes of God. We talked about those last week. And the chief among all of those is love. The God who set the stars in their places who knit each of us together in our mother's wombs is and is characterized by above all things love. Now, whether one feels that love, whether one is is experiencing that love at the moment, God is still love, whether one knows, whether one believes that God is love. God is still love. Our perception of reality doesn't affect what reality really is. I was reading a little C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity this week, uh, just kind of randomly going through and ran across this little section where he talks about the nature and character of God and specifically that God is love. And we know that God is triune because love can't exist without an object of one's love. And so the Father is constantly loving the Son and the Spirit, and the Son is loving the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is loving the Father and the Son. Thank you, Lee. Because God is, is love, and love by its very nature requires an object. God is love. We celebrated last uh, Sunday the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, and we noted just in particular as we were remembering that God expressed that love most fully, most tangibly, most explicitly, most poignantly, powerfully, and eternally in and through the giving of His Son and the giving up of His Son, Jesus. These words we read, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life, This from the Gospel of John and then this from John's first letter. This is how God showed his love among us He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him This is the preeminent way that God expressed his love This is love not that we love God, but that he loved us and since his son is in the sacrifice for our sins This is how we know that we live in him and he in us the father has sent his son to be savior of the world And this truth that God is love is global. We see that in these verses by the repetition of the word world, world, world in Greek, cosmos, cosmos, cosmos. Over and over, this truth is global. God loves the world. But this truth is also at the same time very much local and personal. And this will be our focus this morning. The God who is love not only loves the world, but he also and at the same time loves you. And he loves me, just me, just you. So let me pray again uh, as we open the scriptures. God help us to be attentive, receptive, open, available, focused. May all of our thoughts be on you, guide and direct and shape us as people, not just in this moment, but as we and after we leave this place. We trust that your word and your truth have that power and that you intend such to continually remake us and mold us into the image and likeness of yourself and your son draw us into your presence, fill us with your spirit. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way with your word, may they be immediately and forever forgotten. In the name of Jesus, amen. So from the Gospel of Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse one, listen closely. These are familiar words, they're words from Jesus, they're the word of God. Listen closely. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners in each of them. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And we need to picture this Jesus. He's the revered rabbi and healer, itinerant preacher and prophet, He speaks and around him and maybe closest to him, sort of inner layer, inner core, the people who dare get closest to him and crowd him, are some Jewish men who are explicitly working for the enemy, collecting and over collecting taxes on their own people by and for the occupying Roman government. They were generous to themselves with the cut they sort of took above table and below table. Working on a commission, but typically took a little bit more and quietly pocketed it for themselves. They were scoundrels. They were scums. They had forsaken their integrity for a buck. A long time ago, tax collectors. And then there were the sinners. And of course, everyone's a sinner. Sure, we know that. We all know that personally. But these folks were so hopelessly wrecked. Their lives were in shambles. They were people without morals. They were crude, unclean. They broke all the rules. They got drunk. They were irreligious. Their homes were chaotic. They spoke vulgar words. You know the type. They weren't welcome in the synagogues or the temple. And they didn't really wanna be there anyway. They weren't that type of people. Tax collectors and sinners sort of lumped together by the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, lumped together by Luke. Tax collectors and sinners, yuck. They didn't go to church, but they did gather around Jesus. Interesting, right? They didn't go to synagogue, they didn't go to temple, but they gathered around Jesus. And this reminds me of a quote from Tim Keller who passed away a couple of weeks ago. I shared a couple of weeks ago with the men on Friday mornings. Tim Keller wrote these words. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be be declaring the same message that Jesus did. I find that interesting and helpful, and maybe rehabilitative for us as church. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus just crowding in, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, maybe a layer or two out or on the perimeter, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Sort of a a holy time, he's eating with them. Verse 3, Then Jesus told them this parable. Jesus loves parables. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. How does he put it on his shoulders? How does he put it on his shoulders? Yeah, and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. And we know in actuality that every one of us, everyone is a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We remember that memory verse from high school. We're all sinners. We know that. Every one of us, Jesus knew that, but he was making a point. His attention, God's attention, is not so much on the masses, though it is, but he cares also about the individuals, even the small ones, even the insignificant ones, even the forgotten ones, even and always the lost ones, the lost and forgotten one. And when one of those lost ones is found, there's rejoicing. He puts it on his shoulders with joy. There's greater rejoicing in heaven, Jesus teaches. That doesn't mean the shepherd or the good shepherd doesn't care about the 99. Interestingly, he absolutely does, but he's even willing to leave them in the open field, not in a pen, but in the open field to go find the one so focused on and in love with the one as he is. He cares intimately for that one. So Jesus, so Jesus declares in just these little five verses. There's more though, but there's more. The whole idea was so important to Jesus, this whole idea of lost, found, seek, search, So important to Jesus that he made up and told not only this parable about a lost sheep, but also, uh, which he probably told and retold many times, but also another parable about a lost coin, which begins in the next verse, verse 8, and goes like this. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins, just 10, loses one. Doesn't she go to the trouble of lighting the lamp, sweeping the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, because she's going to find it, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, and like she's like throwing her, friends, neighbors, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin in the same way I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the repentance piece is important here. But let's also remember that repentance is the door through which everyone enters the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, Jesus said. Everyone must go through the kingdom, through the door of repentance to get into the kingdom. They must step in, they must do this. Repentance defined as changing one's mind, changing one's perspective, having a change of thought, doing things differently, living one's life differently, turning away from, walking away from, going away, uh, uh, away from everything that keeps you from God and going to God, sort of that whole repentance enterprise. That's, a, that's definitely a part of this. It's an important part of this to Jesus for everyone, turning from sin and everything that keeps one from God and from exposure to God and from God's presence. It's turning around. The repentance piece is important, undoubtedly. And we can't and shouldn't ignore it. But let's think right now about the shepherd and about the woman. She lost a coin, a little coin, a little silver coin. She had 10 of them, she lost just one. It's somewhere in the house she would find it. But when she did, she goes, I'm calling my neighbors. Hey, friends, neighbors, family. I can't, I gotta tell you this. I lost a coin and I found it. It's in your house all the time, sister. You found what? I found a coin, coin. I mean, it was silver, it wasn't copper. On Friday night, I found something, uh, or more accurately, someone found something for me that I had lost, misplaced, didn't know where it was earlier in the day. And it was, I'm one of those people that when you lose something, it's sorta, I can't let it go. Anyone else like that? You just kinda keep thinking about it, wondering about it, worrying a little bit about it. Where is it? Where did I leave it? Am I ever gonna find it? Did someone pick it up? Did someone take it? Is it gone forever? I really like that thing. And then someone texted me on Friday night late and said, I found your blank. It's here, it's okay, everything's fine, no problem. But did I yell out, shout out, hey, Karen, Anna, Maya, Kayla, this thing has been found. No, I did not. They would think I was nuts. Everything okay, Dad? Sit down, calm down. And yet the woman declares, rejoice with me, rejoice with me. I found my little lost coin. And there's more. Jesus had another parable still in his pocket. And we don't know if Jesus told these three parables separately or if he told them consecutively. He probably told them at least over and over many times to many people. Luke puts them together, and when he writes his gospel, he puts them together as a package for sort of the reiteration of the point, driving home the point. And Jesus may have told them one after another. We don't know for sure. This third one is more explicit. It goes like this, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. hundred, ten, two. The younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, all that was the dad's, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, which was reprehensible to any good Jew, right? Absolutely reprehensible to live among the pigs and to interact with them. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that even the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Better than what I've got. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'm no longer worthy. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, And so they began to celebrate a lost sheep, a lost coin, and now a lost child. No one wants to lose a sheep, no one wants to lose even a coin but losing a child even metaphorically is a whole different category, a completely different category completely different thing. a year or two after uh, we moved to California where our kids were still really little, and one didn't exist yet uh, we lost one of our kids at a very crowded Disneyland. Just like super embarrassing and shameful for a parent, as a parent. We totally lost, I thought you, I thought you had. So I just immediately went into panic mode and then immediately went into search and rescue mode, right? And it was a very long five or ten minutes of running around, panicking, wondering, looking, watching, seeking, searching, until we found her in utter tears. But we did find her. The child in Jesus' third parable, the son was different than the sheep and the coin. The sheep and the coin were simply lost. The sheep had obliviously wandered off. The coin had been inadvertently dropped somewhere, but the son had walked away. The son had left on his own. The son was done with his father. His father was as good as dead to him. Give me my inheritance. You're dead to me. Give him the hand and a whole lot more the palm. And so the father, in Jesus' parable, you notice, didn't go searching because he assumed rightly that even if he had found his son, his son wasn't coming home. His son didn't want to come home. His son had made that abundantly clear. But the father never stopped loving his child. The son's, the child's no thank you did not affect the nature, the character, the heart, the love, Of the Father. The Father never stopped longing, loving His child. He never stopped longing for Him, wishing Him well, praying for Him and His well-being, hoping, 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 which is what love does. And the Father watched. It's as if that Jesus didn't say this, or Luke doesn't record this, but it's as if the Father moved from inside the house to His front porch. Like he moved his bed and all of his stuff out of his house and sort of just moved to the front porch. From which, from where, he could always watch, always listen, always be attentive. Waiting, longing, praying, watching, hoping. And then one day, the father recognized the walk of this figure who was far off in the distance the father recognized the posture and the particular gait because we've all got a unique gait, right? Of that far off person, even before the father could see his face. And that's when the father shot off of the front porch and started running, 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 running. Picture the middle-aged man running as fast as he could awkwardly, right? He's no longer a young sprinter. Driven by what? Jesus said was compassion for his son. A sort of love, care, tenderness and readiness to suffer with another that emanates that word compassion in the Greek deep within one's torso, abdomen, soul. Toward another being. And you know what this father's love language was? You know what this father's love language was? Gifts, touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, and quality time, all of them. And more, he created a sixth. Feasts, parties, festivals. That was his love language. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. God is love. And God loves you. Love being defined as the will of God to intend and to act and to do good for another, blessing for another, to have in mind and to act on it the well-being of another person. God doesn't just recognize you from up there. Oh, blank showed up in church today, I think. God doesn't just recognize you. God doesn't just know you. God doesn't just like you. God loves you. God isn't like a human parent. God just doesn't tolerate you. Put up with your bad behavior. Put up with your whatever. No, God eagerly and joyfully seeks you out and forgives you. In Jesus' third parable, the father is constantly watching, waiting, ready, in love. In Jesus' first two parables, the shepherd and the woman actively search God is not just punching the clock. I don't know if you ever subconsciously think about God this way, but God's, God's got to do that because it's in the Bible. God's got a job description of who he is and what he's got to do and how he's got to act. And he has to forgive. That's what God does. That's sort of good systematic theology. That's how it all works. Cross atonement. He has to, okay, he forgives as if it's a duty or an obligation on God's part, and it never is. It all is constantly over and over and over and over emanating from his compassion, his love, his tenderness for his beloved. I grew up thinking that the word prodigal meant bad, defiant, disobedient, rebellious, selfish. We knew this third of Jesus' parables as the parable of the prodigal son. But over the years, it became obvious slowly that the parable is not primarily about the son, but instead it's really about the father, right? It's not about the son. It's about the father. It was not about a bad boy, but a loving father. But imagine the effect that understanding the story about being a bad boy has on a little boy, or maybe you too. It's really about we're just not, not good enough. Terrible. God's sort of reluctantly okay thing, but it's really about the father. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller helps the reader to see that it really, that the story really is about the father, and it really was the father who is prodigal. If we go by the Oxford Dictionary's definition of prodigal as spending money in wastefully extravagant ways, because that's what the father in Jesus parable did when his son returned. He spent money in wastefully extravagant ways. Not as a way of being irresponsible, but a way as a way of expressing this deep abiding eternal character rooted love for the other. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get out the nice plates and the silverware. Does anyone else have nice plates and silverware that you use about once a decade, that you got for, your, for some reason registered for it at your wedding? Get out the nice plates and silverware, hire a band. Find that amazing wine that we've been saving. Buy some fireworks, give me my checkbook. For the younger people, the checkbook was this thing and there was a little collection of pieces of paper that you could sort of write things on and they would turn into money or people treated it like money. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. The son's rebellion did not in any way affect the father's disposition toward the wayward son. We have to see that. Other than maybe seeming to increase the father's love for that son. If that is possible, which is how love works, which is how God works. Which, if we understand God to be simply transactional, we completely miss that. Or duty-bound, because that's in God's job description. A therapist asked a woman who was a patient client which of her three children she loved the most, to which the woman paused for a moment, and then she replied and said, I love all three the same. The... The therapist asked her again, pressing for an answer, you gotta wrestle with this. Which of your three children do you like the most? Surely you love one more than the She said, no, of course not, I love them all the same. The therapist stubbornly now presses her again, one more time, which of your three children do you really love the most? And now she pauses a little bit longer and says, I guess you're right in some ways. I do love one a little bit more than the other when she is hurting Or in despair or anxiety. And at other times, I love this other one the most when she's afraid or has experienced failure. Or maybe it's the other one sometimes when he is lost, completely lost, in the world. God is love. He can't love you any more than he already does. He will not love you any less. God cannot love you any more right now than he already does, and he refuses to love you, me, any less than he does, even if or when you demand your half of the inheritance and take it to a foreign land and squander it in wild living. The apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. It's not about our worthiness. It's about God's love, okay? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, still sinners, immersed in our sin. Christ died for us. Three chapters later, Paul would write, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then there's these other things that aren't whose, but so we could say who and what. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or running away and taking half of our parents' inheritance, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither there are angels nor demons. And we just, we usually read this at uh, memorial services, right? Just to kind of remind us that death doesn't separate us from the love of God. But it's really, it's really primarily about life. Even though Paul mentions death. Neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of that or anything else can separate you or me from God's other-centered, self-giving love because God is love and because God chooses love and because God has chosen you, every one of you, every one of us. Jesus said, the Bible says, that he knows the hairs on every one of our heads or the lack of hairs on every one of our heads in some cases. And God loves us as we are and not as you should be, because you will never be as you should be, ever. God loves us as we are, not always content to leave us as we are, but God loves us as we are, no strings attached, and not as we should be, ought to be, have to be, should have been, want to be, but as we are, because we'll never be as we should be. Later in his lifetime, after a lifetime of successes and failures, some of them deeply profound, Brennan Manning often said, my deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus, and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Even though we live in a transactional world, we grew up in a transactional world. The good kids, the, the beautiful kids, they were loved. And they were taught that they were actually subconsciously loved because they were beautiful or successful or made good grades or were good athletes, and so missed out on just the unconditional love of God. And then there was the other kids who, because the world said those kids are loved because they're bright or good-looking or successful or strong or whatever, thought, I'm not loved, and they too missed out. And so in some ways, everyone in humanity in our culture misses out on some of the truth that God's love is unconditional, He loves you. He loves me. He loves every one of us as if we were the only or the last person on the face of the earth. If you were the only person on earth, God in Christ Jesus would have still given his life for you and thrown a party. I tend to think, yes, okay, if it was just me, God would still love me. But God's still busting out the really nice silverware and china. He is still opening, uncorking the best champagne. He is still hiring the band, and all of heaven rejoices. The shepherd is joyfully putting the sheep on his shoulders. The woman is yelling out to everyone she can, rejoice with me, rejoice with me. That which was lost has been found. At the risk of leaving the herd unattended for a bit, the good shepherd goes on searching for even just one. It doesn't make any sense, friends. But neither does the reality that the scriptures and Jesus call us to not only understand and know, but to appropriate and to live in and live under. God is love. Whatever else you may think or know or the scriptures say about God, God is love love in and of himself, existing in and of himself, a loving triune being, but God overflowing with love is not content to leave it at that. God loves me, and God loves you. Let's pray. God help us to rest in the truth of your love, to find our meaning and significance and identity in the truth of your love for us, not to elevate us any higher than the the person next to us or around us in the world, but to know that uh, your attention somehow is on seven billion people all at once, unfathomable to our simple human minds. Forgive us and save us from untruth from an understanding of you that's deficient, that thinks that your love is conditional or requires something on our behalf or something first from us. We thank you for your love expressed to us and to the whole world through Jesus coming, through Jesus going, through his suffering and death and resurrection. May your name be greatly praised among us. May your love continue to fill us day by day, year by year. In the name of Jesus, amen.